Well, good morning to you, uh, and good morning to you if you're watching online. Um, This week has been a great week for me. Uh, Many of you will not know this, but every year in November, uh, I go away on retreat just for a couple of days with the other senior pastors uh, in our region. And uh, I am so excited. I mean, we're hearing obviously all the time about wars and rumors of wars, but what I want to tell you, church, is that Jesus is still on the move. He, the kingdom of God is still extending, and honestly, like it was such a blessing to me to hear to, like story after story after story about how the Vineyard Church is expanding across the world. I heard about numerous church plants in Mali. I heard about numerous church plants in India and Africa, even in the Amazon, in the jungle. People are singing the old school Vineyard worship uh, songs, coming to faith, and they're seeing incredible uh, miracles. I'm so privileged to be a part of this move of God at this time. So be encouraged, church. And um, I'm going to give one quick plug. Many of you do know this, but some of you may not know this. I sit on the board for a national conference that we run every year called Course to Live For. It's eight. Yes, come on. Go on, let's have another whoop. Yes, come on. Course to Live For. Uh, It's 18-year-olds to 30s probably into 40s, to be honest, I don't think anyone's going to really mind if you come, but um, it happens every year in November, it's on the 17th and the 18th, so it's, it's this week coming, it's up in Nottingham, uh, the conference this year is called Signs and Wonders, so we're going back to the original days of the vineyard, and our, our speakers this year, are, if you don't know these names, look them up on YouTube, Steve Nicholson is going to be speaking to us, Ellie Mumford is going to be there, and our national directors, John and Debbie Wright, uh, are going to be there, and they are literally like in a sense the grandparents and the parents of our movement of churches so if you haven't signed up yet and you're within that bracket please 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 do sign up it's gonna be epic okay last week Kerry and Lance kicked off this new four-part series that we have called marriage if you weren't here you didn't see it they talked last week about Ahab and Jezebel and if you remember they highlighted uh, and they showed us uh, their unhealthy marriage. They talked about Ahab's passivity as a husband, and they talked about how Jezebel tried to control Ahab and how she kind of put him down. They talked about the importance of putting God first in our marriages. And if you didn't see that uh, last week, do go back and watch it online. But just before we get into our message today, let me remind us the reason we're doing this series. The reason we're doing this is to help strengthen our marriage relationships across the life of this church. Uh, We long to be a community that have marriages that are are marked by love and Christ-likeness where Jesus is at the very centre now, for some of you, when we started this last week, maybe you've just come today and you hear, oh, this series is about marriage. And you're like, well, I'm not married. Uh, maybe you don't want to be married, or maybe you once were married. And you're sitting here and you're thinking, what can I possibly gain by listening to a series like this? Look, our hope through this series is for all of us to have a clearer, healthy understanding of what biblical marriage is and hopefully provide us with some tools to enrich our marriages. It's also our heart that through this series, we pave a way for those marriages in the church family that are struggling to get help. 
See, when we look at society today, it's so very confused, isn't it, when it comes to romantic love and the topic of marriage. In fact, most of us have been taught that if we play our cards right, then one day we're going to meet that perfect person, that, that perfect one, that Prince Charming or that Princess Buttercup or in re- recent years, that Barbie or Ken. Many of us believe that this one person will come along and sweep us off our feet. And from that point forward, everything is just going to be perfect. 2.4 kids, the house, the dog. And just as we sail off into the sunset with our spouse, there'll be this beautiful, happy music playing in the background. And the title will come up across the screen of our life and say... They all lived happily ever after. Look, for any of us married any length of time, we know that's not true. It's not real life, is it? In so many marriages today, happily ever after never seems to come. And as we mentioned last week, over the next few weeks, we're looking at four different couples from the Old Testament, and hopefully we're going to learn some principles that will empower and strengthen our marriages. Or maybe if you're not married, help give you some tools to help support and love those people you know that are married. Now last week in our time of response at the end in our ministry time, if you remember, I had a word from the Holy Spirit to pray for those who wanted to be married. And today I'm kind of building on that uh, somewhat. And hopefully this message today will help some of you guys and girls choose the right person to marry with the right motives. Last week we looked at the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel from 1 Kings 21. This week we're going to look at the marriage of Jacob and Leah in Genesis chapter 29. But before we jump into this text, let me give us a bit of the backdrop of Jacob's story thus far. Basically, Jacob, by a tale of deception, steals his brother Esau's birthright and ends up fleeing from his homeland in fear of his life. Basically, his brother wanted to kill him. In the scriptures, uh, we're told that Jacob's dad, dad Isaac, favoured his older son Esau. I mean, that must, have, that must have been difficult for Jacob. But now he's had to leave his homeland, and I'm sure there must have been this, just this sense growing up in him of, of emptiness, of, of loneliness, fleeing his homeland, and, and, and the loss of the one person who was always by his side, the one that always loved him and supported him, his mum, Rebecca. So he runs away on this journey, fleeing for his life, and then he arrives at this well, uh, this watering well, where he he sees this girl, and uh, her name is Rachel. uh, She actually turns out to be uh, his uncle Laban's daughter. The Bible tells us that Rachel was beautiful, and Jacob falls head over heels for her. Now, having read this whole story and reading between the lines slightly, it's hard not to imagine for us that Jacob turns up at this well a little bit all over the show. 
He must have been, been stressed, right, and, and, and tired and hungry and weary. He had to literally flee for his life, for fear of death. He's, he's left his family uh, behind. He may well have even been depressed. I mean, how would you feel? But when he sees this incredibly beautiful woman, his whole outlook completely changes. I can imagine having gone through all that he's gone through, he's probably thinking, wow, if I can just be with this lady, everything is going to be all right. All all the things that I've left behind, all the things that I have lost won't matter because I'll have someone to belong to. I'll have someone to come home to. Jacob sees Rachel and he instantly thinks she is the one. Maybe, if, uh, maybe he thinks if he can just marry her, then this kind of internal emptiness and loneliness will all be remedied. If he could just marry her, then maybe she can soothe all of his aches and pains inside. Let me tell you, church, this is the same thing that happens all over the world all the time. So let's dive into Genesis 29, verse 16. Today I'm going to be reading mainly from the New Living Translation. And it says this. Now Laban had two daughters. The older daughter was named Leah, and the younger one was Rachel. There was no sparkle in Leah's eyes. Scholars actually believe that Leah was not as physically attractive as her sister, And they say that she probably had some kind of deformity in her eyes. Reading on. But Rachel had a beautiful figure and a lovely face. To translate the Bible here for us, Rachel was stunning. In fact, based on what the original Bible texts say, there are two examples that I want to share with you this morning of what these women probably look like. In my mind, Leah, the older sister, probably looks something like this. Please don't email me this week and tell me that is your late aunt or something. However, in my mind, Rachel probably looks something like this. Ta-da! It's coming. It is. Ta-da! Yes, for those of you that don't know, this is my wonderful wife, Alice. I'm not smart, but I'm not an idiot. (laughs) In all seriousness, we shouldn't undervalue the importance of, of physical attraction because that's one of the ways that God has designed us. But I think in our extreme, sexually fueled, externally focused world, attraction has been elevated to an improper place of importance in relationships. And actually, my conviction is it's setting up crazy, unrealistic expectations in people, which I believe is actually stopping them from from pursuing and meeting future husbands and future wives. Too often today in our world, all that seems to matter to people is the external rather than what's going on in here. So here's Jacob. He's estranged from his home. He's away from his uh, loving mum. He sees this attractive woman and he thinks, if I can just marry this one, then all my hurts will be gone. My life will have meaning. And many marriages 
struggle because we're wanting someone to come along and to fix and to heal something in the depth of our being, something that only God can fix and something that only God can heal. So I want to share through this story this morning three problems that occur when we wrongly believe that marriage is the answer to all of our problems. First problem is that, number one, we can compromise more than we should. In other words, we give up some things that are important to us and that are important to God in the pursuit of the person that we think will satisfy this deep internal longing. Verse 18 says, since Jacob was in love with Rachel, he told her father, I'll work for you for seven years. I wonder how many of us would be married if we had to work for our spouse for seven years. He says, I'll work for you for seven years if you'll give me Rachel, your younger daughter, as my wife. Agreed, Laban replied. I'd rather give her to you than to anyone else. Stay and work with me. So Jacob worked seven years to pay for Rachel, but his love for her was so strong that it seemed to him but a few days. Now at first glance, we might read this story and think, oh, it's so romantic. But... Note that in the culture of the day, a man was required to purchase his bride, to to pay a dowry with, with money or with livestock or with labor. And historians, I read around this, believe that what Jacob did here was crazy because he, he offered to pay four times the standard amount to wed Rachel. Jacob was essentially saying that he would do anything for her. He gave up more than he should. And the same thing like this happens all the time today. Many people in this day and age, they end up dating, and maybe you've said this to yourself, I am going to save myself sexually for marriage. And then you meet this special person, and they encourage you to become sexually active. You might think, well, I don't really want to do this, but maybe you think wrongly that if I give them my body, then they will give me their heart. And so we compromise. Maybe there's a guy who wants to impress a girl. He's a bit shallow and he gets into debt, buying her all kinds of things that he really can't afford just to try and win her approval. But it's not real. He's compromising more than he should. I mean, maybe you're here now and you're dating someone uh, who doesn't really treat you right. But you think, if I can just marry them, then I can probably change them. Jacob should only work for two years for Rachel's hand in marriage. But in his desperation, he compromises more than he should. When marriage is the answer to all our problems, we can compromise more than we should. Look, the second problem that occurs when marriage is the answer to all our problems, we can, come, we can become demanding. Look what happens here to Jacob in verse 21. Finally, the time came for him to marry her. I have fulfilled my agreement, Jacob said to Laban. Remember here, Jacob is talking to his future father-in-law, and he says, now give me my wife so I can sleep with her. 
I mean, that's nuts. Imagine it, those of you that are married here today, or maybe you who are watching online, walking up to your father-in-law and saying, give me my wife so I can sleep with her. Here, Jacob not only dishonors Laban, but he also dishonors Rachel. He says, give her to me. I did my part, now she's going to do hers. And honestly, this is what happens often to some marriages today. Rather than it being a covenant relationship where you're mutually submitting to one another, laying down your lives for one another, preferring one another in love, marriage kind of erodes into this contract where it becomes, if you do this, then I'll do that. And if you don't do this, then I won't do that. It may have even broken down to the point where you've got one person or both of you saying, you never do this, or you never do that. We can husbands, and we can wives, become super demanding. And over the years, I've seen this, even in some good marriages, I've seen this happen. It's easy to slip into the trap of if I do my part, then you do yours. If we believe that our spouse is the one who should meet all of our needs, we can end up becoming demanding. The third problem that occurs when we believe that marriage is the answer to all our problems is we can end up dissatisfied. Some people enter marriage with so many expectations, there's just no way that one person could fulfill all of them. And when we do this, we're setting our future spouse up for guaranteed failure. So back to our story. Jacob's like, Rachel's the one, he's worked his seven years, the wedding is all planned, but Uncle Laban now has a problem. See, in their culture, in their tradition, the oldest daughter must marry before the younger. So over the course of seven years, I mean, maybe Laban thought, well, someone's going to come along and ask for Leah's hand in marriage. But seven years has now passed, and she's still unmarried. And we know Jacob definitely doesn't want her. He wants the younger sister, Rachel. For Laban, this is a serious problem. And then Laban devises this awful plan in verse 22. So Laban invited everyone in the neighborhood and prepared a wedding feast. Let me pause there for a second. Back in those days, the wedding feast was a very big deal. Typically, they were celebrated over a period of six or seven days. The chances are that alcohol was flowing freely. There would have been dancing and there would have been music. And Jacob was celebrating, right? He, he knew he'd worked extremely hard, and now he'd won the girl of his dreams. Now, the scriptures don't specifically say this, but in my reading around this story, it would be fair to say that Jacob was drunk, but probably not drunk, hammered. It was likely he wasn't even really aware what was going on. So on that last night, the time had come, the time for him to finally be with his bride and consummate his marriage. And Laban uses this maid, uh, kind of covers Leah up in some way, maybe a bridle over her head, and he tells her, you go with Jacob into the marriage chamber and consummate the marriage, and then you'll be married. 
And so Leah did what her dad had told her to do. Verse 23. But that night, when it was dark, Laban took Leah to Jacob and he slept with her. Laban had given Leah a servant, Zilpah, to be be her maid. But when Jacob woke up in the morning, it was Leah. What have you done to me? Jacob raged at Laban. I mean, this literally sounds like something out of the Jerry Springer show. Do you you remember that? (laughs) Do you remember that? You might think you've got issues with your in-laws. Think about how Jacob's feeling the morning after the night before. He says at the end of verse 25, I've worked seven years for Rachel. Why have you tricked me? The bottom line, any time we think that someone else can meet all our needs in marriage, we're going to be dissatisfied. In reading around this story, it's interesting to me that Leah had fundamentally done the same as Jacob. Maybe Leah was thinking, well, you know, here's this guy, he's a, he's a hard worker, he's stable. If I go into that tent, if I give him my body, once he gets to know me, he'll learn to love me. So she willingly deceives him. She goes into that chamber with a guy who never wanted her. And then we have verse 31 and verse 32, which are the saddest verses in this entire story. Verse 31, when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he enabled her to conceive. But Rachel remained childless. 32, so Leah became pregnant pregnant, and gave birth to a son. She named him Reuben, for she said, it is because the Lord has seen my misery, surely my husband will love me now. As I read those words, my heart just broke. Surely he will love me now. Surely that I, now I've given him children. Maybe now our marriage will work out. And people get married all the time. And they think, if I, if I can just make some more money, maybe this will sort our marriage out. Maybe we'll be more in love with one another. If I could cultivate a certain lifestyle, then maybe he will love me more. Maybe our marriage will be right then. Some people think, if I can just change myself in some way, then our marriage will be okay Then I'll be loved. But in this story, Jacob still didn't love her. As I draw this message to a close, I want to point out there is one thing that is fundamentally missing throughout every part of this story. There is never a single mention of God or prayer or of seeking God or of faith or of any spiritual reference as far as we can tell. This whole situation was solely based on what I want and what I can get from you. In this story, Jacob was searching for the one. And as, I, as I've read this over and over, the question that I have asked myself is, is he searching for the wrong one and for all the wrong reasons? In our culture, we've been taught a lie that to really be fulfilled, we must find the one. And we can fall into devoting endless amounts of time and energy trying to replicate this Disney fairy tale to find our knight in shining armor or our princess so that we can all just live 
happily ever after. But in doing this, have we, just like this story of Jacob, left God out of the process? Has our pursuit become mostly about external things and what we want rather than God's will for our lives? Our conviction is the only way to really succeed in marriage. The only way to really ever be fulfilled is for God to be our number one and our spouse to be our number two. It doesn't really work any other way in any other order. To really have the kind of marriage that God wants us to have, we have to know and we have to be in a life-giving relationship with the one. This story is super complex. I didn't even touch on the fact that Jacob, Leah, and Rachel were all actually cousins. And I left out the fact that Jacob does eventually get Rachel as his wife as well. And this whole story, as you read on, gets way, way messier. But to end, I want us to look at the end of this story. Because Leah ends up having three sons, and each time she gives birth, she thinks this will be the time, this will be the thing, this will be the event that makes Jacob love me. And unfortunately, the reality is nothing changes. Then the scripture tells us she goes on to conceive again, and this time, as she has her fourth son, it's very different. And I want you to see this, church, because for me, this was the game changer. Once Leah became pregnant and gave birth to another son, she named him Judah, for she said, now I will praise the Lord. And then she stopped having children. In other words, she finally got to the point where she was ready to put her trust in God, to put him in his proper place this time I will praise the Lord. So she named him Judah, and Judah means praise. And here's what's amazing about this son. And we can read about Judah in the Old Testament. But let's quickly jump first. Uh, So we can can read about um, Judah in the Old Testament, but let's quickly jump to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. We read the lineage, which is in essence the family tree of Jesus starting in verse 1. This is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. And Jacob was the father of Judah. Are there people here today all watching online And you genuinely think that marriage will fix all the internal stuff that you carry. Some people here today, I'm convinced, are pursuing Rachel's. It's all about the external and what you want. And maybe you're overlooking the Leah's. Church, I want you to know this morning that it was Leah. It was the older one, the not so pretty one the unwanted one, the unloved one who gives birth to Judah. And it was through Judah, century later, that the Savior, Jesus, would be born. Once again, the scriptures show us 
that out of something that didn't start out right, that didn't start out with the right motives, God worked through the mess to bring forth the most beautiful miracle the world has ever seen. Hear this, church. If your marriage didn't start out the right way, if it didn't start out with right motives, or maybe you're sitting here today and you're saying, honestly, my marriage is not in a good place. There is still hope because God is a miracle working God and he can work through our mess and our failures and our faults. And he can weave something through our brokenness and our shortcomings to establish things for his kingdom to come in our lives on earth in ways that we can't imagine or work out. See, when the two become seeking the one, anything is possible. Maybe you're watching online this morning and you just know that you've crossed lines. You've compromised in some ways in your, your search for your future husband or your future wife. Maybe you've actually just left God out of the process. Let me encourage you this morning, come to Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you know in your marriage you've become that demanding person. It's all about if I'll do this, you need to do that. And as you sit here today, you're like, you know what, I want to change. Let me encourage you this morning. Come to Jesus. Maybe you're dissatisfied with your marriage. Maybe you thought, well, we've got to this point. I thought I'd have fixed them by now. And of course, that hasn't happened. And there's this dissatisfaction. Come to Jesus this morning. His grace is sufficient. And I believe this morning he wants to set some things back on the right track in our marriages, in our seeking of our husbands and of our wives and in our hearts and in our attitudes and in our motives. Amen? Amen.